This ad-free podcast is part of your Slate Plus membership. Hello! Welcome to the Not For Sale Yet episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I'm Felix Hammond of Axios. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. And we are going to talk about whether this here show should start charging guests to come on the show. Are we leaving money on the table by failing to charge our guests? We are asking you to write <laughs> in about that. We are going to talk about the jobs market in states that restrict abortion rights and what happens to women's pay in such places. And we are going to talk about Warner Brothers Discovery and the huge changes that are happening to HBO Max and this brand new company formed when Discovery bought Warner Brothers. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So... We still don't know when season four of Succession is going to come out. We don't have any fictional major media mergers to talk about, but that's okay because we have a real major media merger to talk about. Discovery has bought Warner Media, which is much bigger than it. But basically, the senior Discovery management team, David Zaslav and his boys, because they're all boys, because he's a good old fashioned you know, media mogul, are now running Warner Media, and they are making very big changes. We got their first earnings report this week, and there's a whole bunch of news around this. They've canceled a bunch of shows, and they've canceled a big movie called Batgirl, and they've announced they're going to merge HBO Max, which is the streaming service with Discovery Plus, which is the other streaming service. We don't know what the new one's going to be called. Elizabeth, what do you make of all this? Well, I think this is largely a function of who the CEO is. He's a lot more skeptical about streaming. So his predecessor put a lot of money into it. Now I think companies are backing off of it, particularly because Netflix has been struggling recently. And they tend to be the barometer for everybody else. And I think the key thing here is when you talk about whether something's struggling, whether something is working... It's very hard to tell when you're putting a movie on a streaming service, whether it quote unquote has earned its money back, whether it's earned out, whether it's made a profit, anything like that. With theaters, it's a lot easier. If I spend $100 million making a movie and then it makes $200 million in theaters, I'm like, oh, great, I've made money. If I spend $100 million making a movie and then put it on a streaming service, trying to work out whether it's quote unquote made money in the context of just millions of people paying $10 a month is much harder. And the way that people ultimately decided these things, especially Jason Kyler at Warner Media, who was the old guy who was running things, was, well, what does it do for the stock price? When Disney made that big pivot towards Disney Plus, their big streaming service, which totally outperformed expectations, Disney stock went through the roof. Netflix stock, historically, as we know, has done incredibly well. And... One of the things that Jason Kyler wanted was for like his stock price, insofar as you could measure such a thing, to similarly go up because streaming was valued very highly by the stock market. And then, of course, now we've seen this big decrease 
in the multiples that these dreamers are being valued at in the stock market. And David Zaslav is nothing if not a financial engineer being countertype. Like he really reiterated over and over again on the earnings call this week that he's all about making money for shareholders. And if the shareholders don't want streaming, and it looks right now that shareholders don't love streaming, he's going to do other things. Yeah, and I think it's also, if you pull back and look at this news sort of in the context of the movie business versus streaming, it gets really interesting because it wasn't that long ago where we were talking about, will anyone go to the movies anymore? Like, what's going to happen? Everything's going to be streaming. And I mean, if you take Zaslav sort of at his word here, and there was some commentary to suggest he really doesn't have much of a plan, but he did say things like, that's why people got in this business to be on the big screen when the lights went out. And we're going to lean into actual movies in theaters. And, you know, the Batman did well for Warner Brothers. So you can kind of understand why they wouldn't want Batgirl, and this is a generous interpretation, they wouldn't want Batgirl, which is one of the movies they canceled, to be just released on HBO Max. Like, releasing superhero movies on streaming, to me, doesn't make a lot of sense. Like, the whole movie business now is about superhero movies on big screens, you know? But Disney Plus has kind of really pushed that aggressively. They have this extended Star Wars universe where they have all manner of you know, Star Wars right. stuff going on, on streaming only. And I guess we can argue the toss about whether Star Wars is a superhero movie, but I'll say it is. Yeah, Disney releases these big blockbuster movies. They own Marvel, so whatevs. On the big screen, and then on Disney Plus, you go and you watch these like secondary shows. So it's like a clear strategy where I feel like Warner Brothers was just like, with the movies, was kind of just winging it and putting things out on streaming. And maybe it didn't actually make sense. So, well, I mean, what Jason Kylo was doing, and he's like out now, and David Saslev quite explicitly threw him under the bus. What he was doing is he took advantage of the pandemic to get rid of the windowing. He would still release mm-hmm. movies in theaters, but he would release them on HBO Max at the same time. And that was a great way of getting subscribers for HBO Max because you would say to yourself, you know, I can spend 20 bucks going to the movies or I can spend less than that to subscribe to HBO Max and then get all of this other stuff for free. And so that was his way of getting a huge number of subscribers for HBO Max. And it actually worked. HBO Max subscriber numbers under Kyla massively exceeded expectations. But it does look as though Zaslav is less focused on subscriber numbers. It's like the be-all and end-all. Which makes sense in these times where I feel like the strategy of simultaneous release, is that what it's called, would be, it doesn't make as much sense anymore because you make more money in the theater, so you want people to go there. You know what I mean? Like, it made sense in the pandemic, but I don't know if it makes sense as much now. Do we think that people are going back to theaters as much as they were pre-pandemic? They're certainly going back for the what's known as the tent poles. So Top Gun did really well, and I think Nope is doing really well. It's not clear that they're going back for the cute, like, Duplass Brother movies or something like that. I think that in order to get people out of their homes and into the theaters, you need an actual event. And everything everywhere all at once is kind of hopeful. 
that people will go back for smaller, slightly more experimental movies. But even that was a pretty big screen experience. I can't think of a small, intimate film that has done well in theaters post-pandemic. That's what I think is a danger or what is already happening. Like streaming and Netflix had all this money to spend and they would produce these like smaller kind of like indie films that don't appeal anymore on the big screen. So streaming kind of like rescued that niche of the movie industry. And now if Netflix and Warner Brothers Discovery and whatever other streamers are cutting back and spending less, I feel like those kinds of movies will be the first to go. And you're not going to see them on the big screen either because they don't draw the box office. So that's something to kind of keep your eye on. I feel like they started pulling back maybe a year ago. I actually pitched a show to Netflix with my writing partner mm. and they passed. But Aww. we were sort of talking to people you know, around the situation and were told that they were pulling back on spending and they weren't as willing to spend huge amounts of money on individual shows. And I yeah. think one of the other things that's happening is everything has become so much more international now that the sheer amount of content on these services is going up, even if they don't continue to commission a bunch of new American content. And they're doing a pretty good job, especially Netflix, of taking the stuff they're making in Belgium or France or Korea or wherever and like turning it into big international hits. And I really like that. Maybe international filmmaking and TV making is the new, you know, small indie movie, right? And, the, you know, what is it? The, that Indian movie, uh, I don't know how to pronounce it, uh, 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 you know, has completely just massively outperformed on Netflix. And everyone's like, this is amazing. And then, of course, there was Squid Game. So, you know, I mean, obviously there are winners and losers, but I kind of like the idea that the American streaming consumer is actually noticing the rest of the world for possibly the first time ever. You can sort of tell when that happened because the stuff that they produced in studio, the credits are like a half an hour long because you have all these credits for translation into different markets. So you can tell where they're selling it. I do think Emily is right that Zaslav kind of doesn't have a strategy right now. There was this absolutely wonderful bit on the earnings call where he was spouting a bunch of jargon and I copy and pasted it because I thought it was so glorious because we cover more surface area. We have theatrical streaming, linear cable, free to air gaming, consumer products and experiences, our own platforms, other platforms. He just went on and on about this. And then he ended it he ended it by saying, quote, At Warner Brothers Discovery, we believe strongly in the importance of, and then you know what he said, preserving optionality. <laughs> <laughs> Which has, in my world of, of financial journalism, has always been this joke, right? Which is like, if you want to do nothing, just say that you're preserving optionality. And it's this like way of just saying, I'm not going to do anything and I have no idea what to do. And he's actually just coming out and quite aggressively <laughs> saying, I'm going to do fuck bugger all. I'm just going to do nothing and call it preserving optionality. That's amazing. I think maybe the biggest winner out of all this streaming stuff is going to be Apple and Amazon. Because they can do streaming, they could not do streaming. It doesn't matter. They're not dependent on the revenue from that stuff. It's like marketing for them. They're making money in other ways. You know, it's just vanity. How does that make them a winner? I feel like they're like 
bidding up the costs for everyone else, they're not mm. making money, they're losing money. Mm. These are loss centers for Apple and Amazon, they're not profit centers. So like, yeah, I mean, they get marketing value or whatever it is, but I'm not clear how that makes them a big winner. Fine, Felix. The winners are the people who can get their shows made on Apple and Amazon, because they're the yes. only ones who can be making those shows anymore. Like, <laughs> exactly. that's prestige, whatever. What was that one on Apple that everyone likes? Severance? I still haven't seen that. Oh, it's really Oh, it's I great. It. Yeah. <laughs> I think you would yeah. like it. I just, I'm, I'm one of these people who's incredibly allergic to subscriptions. I will happily, if someone said, here, Felix, you can pay 20 bucks and watch Severance, I would do it in a heartbeat. But if someone's like, you need to sign up for a monthly subscription to watch Severance, I will find any excuse not to do that. Are you an HBO subscriber? You mentioned Succession. Do you... Uh... Well, like HBO is very nice, and they send us screeners to Succession. Do you even have a Netflix login, Felix? What is happening here? Do you not have any <laughs> streaming subscriptions? I feel like we are reaching the limits of my comfort zone in terms of revealing what kind of subscriptions yeah. I have. Okay, okay. I wanted to ask Elizabeth if she thought Scrapping Batgirl was sexist. Uh, I, th- I think there are a lot of assumptions that went into Scrapping It that were probably sexist, which is that if you have a female lead, the movie isn't going to do as well. We've seen that before. We've seen stuff get canceled with female leads, especially in the superhero genre. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> Let's move on and talk about Emily. What do you want to talk about this week? Okay. You put me on the spot here, but I didn't prepare. I already spoke about monkeypox and intellectual property laws for the What Next TBD podcast. So go listen to that if you want to hear about that. Okay. But you said you were interested in talking about another piece I wrote this week, which was about a new abortion study that found that women's wages fall by 5% each time a trap law is enforced. Trap laws are targeted regulation of abortion providers. They're essentially restrictions on abortion that states passed, you know, before they could just ban abortion entirely. These guys looked at data going back to when Roe was first enacted all the way up to 2016. And they basically looked at all women of childbearing age in the country. Um, The stark conclusion was wages fall. Yeah, it's an amazing natural experiment, right? Because you can see that trap laws are introduced at different times in different states, and you can compare women's wages in those states to women's Mm -hmm. wages in states where they didn't happen. And this conclusion, I mean, I color myself relatively jaded and cynical, but it shocked me, honestly. Like, I was like, wow, 5% is a big drop in wages, you know, just because of these laws. And I was kind of interested that it hasn't received higher play because I think people don't naturally associate these laws with, like they understand that it might make it harder to go to work if you have a kid who you didn't want or something like that. But like the idea that even if you don't have a kid, then your wages might be lower. That's like, wow. It sort of makes intuitive sense to me because my impression is that the redder the state is, the poor it is. I mean, that that sort of bears out at least a lot in the Southeast. So what in wages, it, what's the driving factor there? How is it causal, I guess? Well, they didn't really tease out. So they looked at women, all women of childbearing age, right? And then it was an average that wages went down 5%. So, you know, it might be that women who wind up having children are the ones that are seeing the most wage loss, but it's unclear. 
And I spoke to another economist, Kate Bond, at Equitable Growth. It's a think tank. And she's done similar kinds of research. And she thinks that when there are these restrictions in your state, that women just don't, their ambitions are curtailed. And I kind of went back and forth with my editor about including this in the piece. But it's a really, really interesting way of thinking about it. Even when women aren't, you know, forced to give birth or anything, if they're living somewhere and they know that it's possible that, you know, if they get pregnant, they're going to have to carry the baby to term. Maybe they don't decide to go for the PhD or go to medical school or take a job with worse health insurance. Or she's done research that's shown in states with trap laws, there's more job lock. Like women don't switch jobs as much. So it's sort of interesting. And I was thinking about it in the context of like, we know that the children of wealthier people are more likely to take risks in terms of like entrepreneurship because you just have that kind of like safety net that you feel and a culture and a lifestyle and just a grounding in that kind of vibe. So you like feel like you can take a risk. And I think maybe what's going on besides the obvious, like if you are forced to have a child, your career is not going to turn out the way you wanted it to. I think there's something to be said about like the cultural air you breathe and swim in that restricts women's economic opportunities. So one of the things I wrote about this week was the Supreme Court. And there's this wonderful new study from Lee Epstein and Mitu Gulati showing that this is the most pro-business Supreme Court that we've had in a long time. And you can read that on Axios.com. But the question I have for you, given this finding, is this is, you know, trap laws are clearly bad for labor, at least in terms of the 50% of workforce is female. Does that make it good or bad for capital, for business? I feel like if I'm reading you correctly, this is bad for business. It makes women less ambitious, less productive, you know, less likely to drive business to some wonderful new heights. And this is a weird case where something that is anti-labor is also anti-business. Yeah. I mean, even pulling back from like, what does it mean for half the population? It does mean lower labor force participation, which means fewer workers to choose from, which means you have to pay workers more. And we're like literally living through that right now, right? So that's crazy that you can actually, you can have a situation where wages go down, but employers still need to pay workers more, which is very counterintuitive, but I do understand that. I think it goes back to uh, what Emily was saying about the cultural air that you breathe. You know, in a a lot of places where this would affect women the most heavily, you have very sort of retrograde ideas about women's role in the workforce. So a lot of employers consider, you know, women in the workforce disposable. And a lot of them are in political environments where now there's a lot of pressure to, not so much to kick women out of the labor force, but to make them stay at home. I mean, that's something J.D. Vance in particular has been very vocal about the fact that he thinks that women should be at home raising children. It really does run counter to our macroeconomic interests, though. It's so interesting to me, like Business Week has a whole package on like women's economic rights and things, I think, this week. And there's this great chart in there where they show the amount of public funding for like childcare and young kids, like schooling, like before K through five on the one axis and labor force participation on the other axis. Sorry, I get 
don't worry about it. What it shows <laughs> is that the U.S. falls very low. It's like in line with Chile and a few other countries at the bottom of that, like our labor force participation is really low and you could attribute it to, you know, more women staying home because there's no support for if you have a child to send it to childcare, to send it to preschool, et cetera. And then the countries with the highest labor force participation are the ones that spend more money on those things on childcare. So it's like JD Vance wants to keep the ladies home, but like not good economically. You're not going to persuade J.D. Vance that we need to become Sweden, I will tell you that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know. That's what's frustrating, too, about covering this stuff. It's like the arguments and the studies, like there are so many of them. They're pretty clear, but this isn't about rationality. It's about political will and ideologies. And now it's about life and death. So like no one wants to hear about the economic arguments. Anymore, exactly. Anyway. Like if, yep. if you walk into a, like a <laughs> pro-choice rally saying, you know, I want to maximize economic output. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're not winning hearts and minds with like labor force participation is quite low. Did you see? <laughs> Wages are up. There's a wage price spiral coming. Like we must get abortion legalized to fix that. It'll solve inflation. Like, you want to solve inflation? <laughs> Reduce inflation by increasing abortions. Yeah, that's a great slogan. I can't believe I'm not running for office. <laughs> but talking of economic incentives, Elizabeth Spires, we are a proudly capitalist podcast right here. Should we not be charging people to come on this show? <laughs> So Felix is referring to, there was a Bloomberg piece this week about podcasts charging guests to appear on shows and not disclosing it. So at the high end, there's, I believe, Dave Asprey, self-described biohacker guy who's responsible for Bulletproof Coffee, I believe, charges $50,000 to have guests on his show. And so, to be clear, some of these people do disclose it, but the disclosures are very weird and it's not clear what they mean and they can get buried at the end of the show. But like the fact, I mean, whether you disclose it or not, it's still like, wow, people are getting paid to go on shows, which is kind of interesting, but it makes economic sense to me. How? Like, well, I mean, podcasts make money this way, so. So like, number one, <laughs> it's a great way for the podcaster to make money. But number two, there is a vibrant world out there of, I don't know how to put this, sort of small business entrepreneurship type podcasts where the idea is that the guest is someone inspirational and you listen to the inspirational story of this successful guest and you think to yourself, wow, that has inspired me to go out and make lots of money myself and I have learned from their mistakes or their successes or whatever and now I too can go out and make lots of money and that is just amazing and frankly valuable publicity for the guest. That assumes yes. though yeah. that the content is not absolute crap. And also here I think we should say guests do not pay to be on sleep money. I mean I'm now like reconsidering this policy because I feel like, <laughs> why are we leaving money on the table? Uh, Emily, explain to me from a sort of media ethics point of view, what is the good reason for us, if we do have a guest, not to accept a check from that guest? Well, if a guest is paying you $50,000 to interview him or, or her, maybe, so just, typically, maybe just like 5,000, I don't know, maybe slate money isn't that don't popular. sell us short, <laughs> Felix. Well, then you, as the interviewer, don't really have much incentive to press the guest in any way. And if it's like a CEO entrepreneur business type, like 
you're leaving a lot on the table. You're potentially misleading people. Like you can get some huckster crypto entrepreneur to come on and give you his inspirational story. But then like behind the scenes, this guy's like ripping off, you know, all his investors or something. That's journalistic malpractice. You don't do that. Yeah, I think I think that's right. <laughs> Although I would also say that most of the podcasts who do this, frankly, don't really fall under the general rubric of journalism. Yeah, but it's misleading to listen to a podcast. Some CEO comes on and talks about like how great his company is, or maybe he doesn't talk about how great his company is. Maybe he talks about the economy or something. It's just it's misleading not to it's 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 advertising. Companies pay podcasts to advertise on the podcast and this crosses the line. Okay, right? so this brings us back to Elizabeth's point about disclosure, right? We have ads on this show, they're disclosed. Like we have all made our peace with that. So long as it's disclosed, is that not just a disclosed ad like any other disclosed ad? I think it's less problematic if you do it that way. I think it's not great when the shows sort of insinuate that the guests are on because they're good <laughs> and because they, you know, wanted them on. But also, you know, this is potentially a regulatory issue because in other mediums, you're required to disclose that content is paid for. And it, mm. nobody's really enforced it with podcasts, but I could see it happening soon. It's not clear who the regulatory authority would be? Uh, I think it's the FCC, right? I feel like the FCC doesn't really have control over podcasts. Like, there's no public airwaves that are being used, but I might be wrong the about FTC, that. The FTC, since they regulate advertising? The FTC, I feel like, is, is slightly yeah, more likely. I yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath and wait for the day. All your podcast hosts are like, full disclosure, before this great guy comes on, I want to let you know, he $100,000. This tends to happen and it's very specifically business podcasts, crypto podcasts, and the wellness sector. And especially the cannabis. Under <laughs> really? Yeah, cannabis is big for this because it's like, it's any of these places where you have companies that are trying to break through in a crowded field. And crypto is one of those, cannabis is one of those. And anything you can do to try and get the attention of people who are in that field and care about the field. So if there's a cannabis podcast that everyone listens to, you really want to be on that cannabis podcast and it's worth money to you to be on it. Yeah, I mean, it's the gold standard for companies is earned media. That's when, you know, people like Felix or Elizabeth mention your company or your CEO and you didn't have to pay them to do it and it seems really natural. That's like money in the bank. It's so much better than any ad you could buy, like if someone just talks about you in a news story. So this is how companies get around that. It looks like earned media, but it's totally not. But earned media isn't free. Let's be very, very clear about this. Like One of the things that is happening here is that companies are just paying podcasts directly to get on their shows instead of paying just as much money to PR companies who then get them on the shows. That's true. Interesting. I will say I have a former client that was a CEO of a cannabis company and asked me to <laughs> try to get him on podcasts. And this is where I first learned about this because there, there were some podcasts that would charge you to even apply to be a guest on the show. And he very specifically wanted to be on podcasts because he wanted to talk about why the FDA should regulate cannabis. And I asked him, you know, well, what about cable news? Is there anywhere else you want to be? And he said, no, because I don't, it's a complicated issue and I don't want to talk in sound bites. In a podcast, you can really go into depth on things. And I think that's true, but I think that's part of the reason why people find it 
so attractive. You know, if you can get your CEO on podcasts, it's like a 30 minute ad. It's not, you know, yeah. Leading. Yeah. So so I want to ask you guys, Slate Money listeners, should we auction off <laughs> a slot on Slate Money to the highest bidder? I'm kind of fascinated <laughs> to see what would happen if we even tried. Can we turn it into an NFT somehow after we do that? <laughs> exactly. We, I, we're going to mint an NFT because all sales gimmicks need to be Web3 these days. We're going to mint an NFT and the NFT will give you the right to appear on Slate Money. And then we're going to auction off the <laughs> NFT to see to whoever will pay the most. Is this the world's worst ever idea or is this just a terrible idea? Email or is us it a on slatemoney.com. Or is it a genius idea? And we should totally do this because it would be hilarious. <laughs> you could pay me $50,000 to appear on Slate Money. Same. Clear. I will take it. I would do it for we less. I will take it. Yeah. <laughs> Like 25? Split it? Yeah. Let's have a numbers round. I think I am going to start this week with 528,000, which I feel like we really ought to mention in this show about the business and finance news of the week. Emily is nodding. 528,000 is, Emily? Jobs added to the U.S. economy in July. Scorching hot. Scorching hot. We have a scorching hot labor market, and June was revised upwards as well. And yeah, we have a big surprise this week in terms of the jobs report. It massively came in way above expectations. The unemployment rate went down. And of course, the markets hearing this news, which is really great news of everyone getting jobs and the economy doing great, went down because something interest rates something. We don't need to talk about the Fed. But yeah, congratulations, America, on hiring another half a million people in one month, which is kind of impressive. Yeah, now there are only 2.3 remaining economists who think we're in a recession. <laughs> the odds have gone to 31% from 45%. <laughs> Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is 2.2 million. And that was what an NFT sold for of a, there's an NFT artist named Schlomms. I, I think that's how you pronounce his name. Schlomms. Exploded a Lamborghini in February on camera to skewer oh, the crypto world one. and sold the resulting NFT for $2.2 million. The NFT world, it still exists, people. People are still buying and selling NFTs. They haven't stopped. They're not doing it quite as much as they used to. The volumes are down like 80 or 90%. I guess if the Lambo had been exploded a year ago, it would have gone for 20 million. You know, 2.2 million is not nothing. Is that more than the Lamborghini is worth? Did you see the Lamborghini quarterly results? They had record revenues this quarter. And I did the math. I divided their revenues by the number of cars they sold. And it worked out to roughly $385,000 per car. Does that mean that's how much Lamborghinis cost? I can't believe There's that. There's also an incredibly yeah. long wait list. And I think that's part of the reason why they're still doing well. But they're also considered a very specific status marker for crypto people, which is why the, the NFT guy decided oh, wait, very specifically on. to blow up a Lambo. A Lambo. Yeah, my bad. Sorry. The average Lambo is not $385,000. I got that wrong. It's the average Ferrari is $385,000. Ah. And I'm sure there are Slate Money listeners who can write in on slatemoneyatslate.com and explain why there's a very important difference between Lamborghinis and Ferraris. I am not a car person and I do not understand it. 
I think they're both supercars. There you which go. I learned about last week on Slate Money. So. Emily, what's your number? My number is 400,000. That's the number of dollars you can earn if you're willing to be a chief of staff for an ultra high net worth individual because there is a labor shortage of really well-qualified executive assistants for rich people right now, according to the Wall Street Journal, where I read this. Calum Borchers is the author. And so salaries are exploding for executive assistants. And not only are salaries exploding, but now they're being called more likely to be called chief of staff because that's like the holy grail of job titles for these people. It seems like a really awful and hard job. You basically have to be on call 24-7. You know, they wake you up at 3 a.m. You're cleaning up dog poo. You're fixing the plumbing in their vacation homes. It sounds awful, but it is very well paying. So Maybe that's my next career shift is going to be into executive assistancing for some gazillionaire. Well, I think that's it. Thanks for listening thanks very much to Jessamine Molly for producing thanks for all of your emails do let me know if we should try and sell a guest spot on Slate Money Elizabeth is shaking her head I feel like this is not going to happen we will have a Slate Plus about lobster rolls and we'll be back next week with even more Slate Money okay so This is a great story for Slate Plus because we love you subscribers. You're wonderful. And we're going to tell you about lobster rolls. In 2021, the price of lobster went up and the price of lobster rolls went up. And then in 2022, the price of lobster went down and the price of lobster rolls went up. And we have a very, very easily comprehensible and compelling reason why, Emily, do we not? Yes, This is great. It ties back to the worker. It ties back to those 500,000 jobs that were created in the hot labor market. The lobster costs less, but the labor needed to extricate the lobster from the shell costs lots more. So the price of lobster rolls has gone up. And this week, I literally walked across the street from the Axios office to Luke's Lobster on University Place, and I ordered a lobster roll. And I came back to the office and I ate it. And it was delicious. And thank you, Luke's Lobster. But it was $44 with tax and tip. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Just eat a tuna sandwich. (laughs) I feel like lobster rolls are sort of viewed as luxury cuisine. And you can basically put any price on them and someone will pay for it. That's what he wrote in his piece. (laughs) The prices are all over the place. It's like $20, $40, $50. No one knows how much these things cost. What's the max that you would pay for a really good lobster roll? Well, I would never pay $44 for a lobster roll, except for I just did. You know? So, like, I have no idea. I remember um, taking a survey once, which said, like, what's the maximum amount of money you would ever pay for a refrigerator? And I put down some, like, ludicrously high number. And then randomly actually looked up how much I paid for my refrigerator. And it was so much more than the ludicrously high number that I'd put down. (laughs) I feel like when you ask people what's the most you would pay for something, it's not actually the most they would pay for something. 
That's probably true. I think with a lobster roll, and you you kind of alluded to this, Felix, in the conversation about lobster rolls. I don't remember if it was in your piece or not, but you said you can pay $26 for the view at this restaurant, which is like high up in Manhattan, and get your lobster roll for free. Like with lobster rolls, and, and our colleague Matt said like he bought a lobster roll when he was on vacation in Rhode Island. It's like it's a it's the mood, it's the place you're in. It's like Lobster an activity rolls more than a people. meal. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> if you're on vacation and you're like out at the beach or in some cute little town or something, it's not really about the lobster yeah. roll. Like to buy one and eat one at your desk seems is, the, is like the, not what's the, the vibe of lobster roll in the Axios office? What is that do you feel? Yeah, I feel like like yeah, I've had great lobster rolls in my time but the best lobster mm-hmm. rolls i've ever had were all in maine and it's because you're in maine mm-hmm. and that's why mm-hmm. i led off my list of lobster roll prices with what i called the benchmark lobster roll which is from <laughs> kennebunkport in maine and that's 29 dollars right now was that your personal benchmark felix i i had questions about that <laughs> is that a widely known benchmark or is it just like in your like personal zagats Maybe that's just like the Bush family's personal benchmark. That's where they have their compound. Bye, Slate Plus. <laughs>